This is the 343 Podcast. I'm your host, John Pronich. Welcome to the show. Brian Hess is the acting executive director of Sports Fans Coalition, the nation's largest sports fan advocacy group. The first message that you see on their homepage in big, bold lettering is, every fan deserves a voice. And while Brian and his crew have advocated for sports fans since 2009, they are basically brand new to the soccer landscape. And in just a short amount of time, they've already picked up on some very, very suspicious activities, relationships, and deals within U.S. soccer. And to sum it up quickly, Brian smells smoke, and now he's looking for the fire. He wants to help American soccer fans out by doing the dirty work. And this podcast is intended to be an introduction to Brian and Sports Fans Coalition and all of their work. This conversation with Brian is possibly the most unfiltered in the 343 podcast history. Not because there's a bunch of cussing, but because Brian and I literally knew nothing about each other and recorded the first conversation that we ever had. We didn't do a pre-interview. We didn't set any boundaries. We still don't have each other's email addresses. We simply spent an hour on the phone talking about some things that we think are problems. And you are probably, hopefully, going to be fired up after listening to this podcast. So if you are interested in learning more about Brian Hess and the work that he does with Sports Fans Coalition, you can find links to all of his outlets in the written portion of this episode, which is available at 343coaching.com. That's the numbers 3, 4, and 3, coaching.com. And I'm purposely keeping this intro short because I want to get right into the action. But I want to first remind you that this podcast is powered by the 343 Coaching Education Program. 343 offers a free seven-week course and a premium course. The free seven-week course is a great introduction to 343's proven possession-based methodology. But the premium course takes an even deeper dive with exclusive training sessions, full match videos, audio interviews, classroom sessions, ebooks, and access to the nationwide community of 343 members via the online forums. The 343 Coaching Education Program gives you an inside look at the cutting-edge training methods that are being used to develop pros here in the United States. You can learn more about the 343 Coaching Education Program by visiting 343coaching.com. That's the numbers 3, 4, and 3 coaching all spelled out.com. All right. Thank you for listening to the 343 podcast and I really hope that you enjoy this conversation with Brian Hess. Hello, this is Brian. Hey, Brian, this is John from 343. Hey, how you doing? Good, man. How are you? I'm doing well. I thought we were at 245. 245. I was told East Coast time. <laughs> Isn't that now? Uh, No, it's 145, but we can do it oh, now. Oh, shoot. Okay, so I, I had asked Kristen for 1045, uh, my time, so that way I could watch the Barcelona game that's, that's at 1145. All right, well, let's do it now. Okay. You, you have time? Are you just... sure? Yeah, yeah, I've got time. Let me just uh, get my 
headphones in and go to a quiet place. Okay, cool. I appreciate that, man. Sorry. No, that's fine. Time zone calculations are difficult. <laughs> yeah, I, I I frequently talk with uh, a pretty um, prolific soccer guy that's in Japan. And I, every time that I do that, I have to sit down like with a piece of paper and figure it out. Like, all right, what time is it there? What time do I need to call? Yeah, no, I, I get you there. No, we're good. All right, just let me know whenever you're all settled in. Uh, let me just get my laptop up and yeah, we'll be good. I'm ready whenever you are. All right, cool. Let's go for it. Um, so just so you know, um, it, it's already recording, but if there's anything that you want to talk about right now, we can, I'll, I'll obviously edit out whatever, uh, whatever we need to. Um, if there are any topics that are off limits, just let me know right now. And then other than that, I'm kind of just gonna, I'm going to probe you for just the general ideas. What, what kind of you guys stand for, what you guys are trying to do, why you guys are getting involved with soccer and, um, and then see kind of where the conversation takes us. Yep, absolutely. Cool. Nothing off limits? Uh, nope. All right. Let's do it. These are, these are easy interviews then. <laughs> I, don't have to, I don't have to watch anything that I say. Um, nope. Okay, so right off the bat, I, I want to kind of just let you know, I, I honestly do not know much about you guys. Um, Kristen was introduced to me via a, a mutual friend, and she gave me a, a call the other day and kind of explained what you guys uh, are up to, and I was super interested in kind of like the general idea, but I purposely didn't uh, explore much with her because I wanted this to be a little bit more candid. Um, so if you could kind of just introduce yourself and let people know what type of work you're doing, that would be that would be amazing. Yeah, so first, thanks for having us on. Uh, we're the Sports Fans Coalition. We're the nation's largest sports fan advocacy group. Uh, we were founded in 2009 with the idea that sports fans are the largest consumer group out there, yet they were one of the only that didn't have an advocate. Uh, so we started off trying to advocate for sports fans up the Hill uh, in Washington, D.C., federal regulators, and then also in some state houses as well. Uh, our biggest win happened in 2014 with the sports blackout rule, where we petitioned the FCC to overturn it so that uh, the NFL couldn't blackout uh, football games from television if a certain number of tickets were sold at a home game. Yeah, so that's kind of where we started, but we also addressed the public financing of sports stadiums, uh, player health and safety, especially with regards to concussions. Uh, and we're still play a lot in the media space, uh, but why we got involved with soccer is we were looking at a lot of the kinds of things that were being raised in the presidential campaign from uh, the issues with pay to play and how that discriminates against uh, children of color, uh, some of the women's inequity issues, and just kind of the general like transparency issues around the election. Uh, and so we just realized that we need to get involved in here because this is uh, where sports fans care about. Soccer fans are growing rapidly and they're <laughs> one of the quickest growing sports in America. So we really wanted to get in here on the ground floor to kind of shape what the future of soccer will look like. Yeah, there's a there's a number of topics that I do want to get into and, and the public financing of stadiums is one of them. Um, but I, I want to hear a little bit more about that, that blackout uh, deal that you guys did with the NFL 
or against the NFL. How how do you guys kind of pick and choose what issues to go after, and then why specifically did you guys choose to go after that one? Uh, so the sports blackout rule, we chose that because most sports fans watch their games, especially football, on broadcast television. And that was the easiest way and the most painful way that fans are being directly harmed from the unfair and anti-competitive practices that places like the NFL do. Uh, so we chose them. That's what kind of our realm is. We look at what's hurting fans, what can we address, uh, and how can we address it? And, you know, if we find a good way to campaign to run around all of it, we'll address an issue. Uh, you know, we try to keep an open mind to listen to what the sports fans are actually saying, too. If we get a lot of our fans from around the country saying that they care about a particular issue, we'll address it. Uh, we would reach, we'll reach out to teams and leagues and uh, officials, try to help the individual fans, too. Uh, so it's a combination of kind of our expertise uh, in the policy world, as well as what the fans are saying to us. And describe your, your team for me just a little bit, because you're saying that you guys have like expertise, but what type of expertise? You guys lawyers or you guys uh, sport, just sports fans? What's the background there? Uh, I, I am not a lawyer, but uh, our chairman is uh, a lawyer, former uh, worked, used to work for Bill Clinton, and then he also worked as a counsel uh, for the FCC. Uh, so he's been really versed in like, all the media policy. And he's our founder and chairman, David Goodfriend. Uh, we also have uh, several journalists, our board of directors, other policy officials in the public interest space. Uh, myself, uh, I am the acting executive director, uh, and I come from a more communications background as well as a sports fan. Got it. Got it. Um, all right. So I, I want to dive in headfirst to the public financing of stadiums because that is a big issue in the soccer world. I'm not sure if uh if you guys have kind of gotten into into that yet because i know from what Kristen told me it sounds like soccer is kind of a new project for you guys or like a new avenue for you guys but mm-hmm. um with mls expanding and cities being kind of uh forced to have certain size stadiums and and whatnot and the fans have kind of spoken up in certain cities. St. Louis comes to mind right off the bat where they've kind of said no to public funding for stadiums. So how have you guys been involved in that space in the past? And what are some plans for the future right there too? So that's a great question. Our biggest uh, public financing of sports stadiums advocacy happened uh, this past fall on two fronts, uh, one on the state and local level and another on the national level. Uh, state and local, we launched a campaign called the Danifesto, uh, a pun of Dan Snyder, the owner of the Redskins, because <laughs> uh, he's starting to shop around for a new Redskins stadium. And, you know, Washington football fans love the team, but they're not particularly fond of the owner. Uh, so we started a campaign basically saying that uh, these state and local leaders should uh, sign and agree that if Dan Snyder seeks public money for building a stadium in either Virginia, Maryland, or D.C., that then there's a list of conditions that he should agree to, uh, some of which being discounts for the taxpayers, free parking, uh, allowing the Little League, allowing the uh, Pop Warner teams or uh, public schools to use the stadium for big games, uh, things that really would make the stadium a public good, because that's the big problem when it comes to public financing of sports stadiums is that they seldom yield a positive economic benefit for the city or for the state. And in my personal opinion, I, 
I'm sorry. Uh, I was I was going to ask, how do you guys measure that or track that? Uh, we are we track it through economic development. That's what most economists look at it from. You know, the hard numbers did did tax revenue yield from it greater than what was put in in a reasonable time frame. Uh, and Brookings did a study where among like most of the football stadiums built, a return was not even made in like 20 years. You know, so that's uh, not a good economic return. That's terrible. Uh, yeah, I would definitely recommend checking uh, checking into that study. What what was that again? Can you? Uh, it was um, Brookings Brookings Institute. Okay. It was published so, in 2015, I believe. Okay, I'll try to look that up and put that in the show notes for people so they can link yeah. to it. Um, yeah, and and I don't know, just a couple other soccer things that come to mind. Um, there's a documentary on Netflix. I think it's called Sons of Ben. And it's about the Philadelphia Union and how they kind of were awarded an expansion team. And there was these big promises of a big waterfront development that was going to include stores and restaurants and bars and all kinds of stuff that were supposed to be tied into the stadium deal. Well, the stadium got built. And from the last time that I checked Google Maps, that waterfront development is still not developed. And so it's kind of like this promise that never was fulfilled. So if you're saying that what the Redskins fans are trying to do to get Dan Snyder to agree to all these things, what can actually hold him accountable? How, how do, how do fans or how do you guys hold him accountable to make sure that he actually follows through on some of those things? Uh, well, it has to come from the law. Uh, it has to be written into law and written to the contract uh, that the agreement of whatever um, government grants the money to for him. And that's gotta be a part of the condition and then it has to be enforced. Uh, a lot of times there aren't those conditions. They say, yes, this is our plan but then the plan doesn't always come out like how it should. Yeah, of course. Uh, now, not... I don't, I don't know the details on the Philly, on the Philly case that you referenced. Uh, so I don't want to you know, speak on those behalf, Yeah. but um, for the most part, you have to make sure the conditions are enforced. Yeah. And another example that, that has been brought up to me multiple times, just because I was originally born in the Bay area and I still have strong ties up there, but I think the San, the San Francisco 49ers stadium in, Santa Clara, I think there was some some controversy there where there's still very limited access to whatever was promised to the to the mm-hmm. greater Bay Area. Is that something that's been on your guys' radar at all? Yeah, but more recently, the Oakland Raiders. Oh, that's right. You know, they're they're leaving Oakland to go to Las Vegas because they were promised something like seven hundred and fifty million dollars to build a stadium uh, in Las Vegas, and what's more, that money is coming out of the public education budget. Okay. So, uh, and, and is that, is that typical? Is, is that typical for, you know, them to target one specific, I guess, um, revenue or sorry, not revenue. That's the bad, that's, that's not what I'm looking for. Um, one specific kind of like pot of money. So like education or I don't know, you're probably, <laughs> I don't even know how yeah. to ask the question. Sorry. <laughs> uh, I think I think I know where you're going for. Yeah. Um, if I can assume here. So, in the case of the Raiders, the tax money that's being used to pay for that comes from the hotel tax. Got it. Okay. Being Las Vegas, the hotel tax is their largest source of revenue. Okay. Uh, now, that revenue is what also funds the public education system and a few other government services. So among their priority list of what gets paid for, because they promised the $750 million to uh, Mark Davis, the stadium gets paid for before – the funding for public education. 
uh, it's at a higher priority list than what gets paid for out of the hotel tax. Now, they've also talked about raising the hotel tax, so we'll see how it helps. But uh, as for generally speaking, what people don't realize, a lot of it comes from rental car taxes. Wow. Uh, that seems like the left theory, field. Yeah. Well, the theory is that only out-of-towners and you know traveling businessmen rent cars, right? But actually, the most people who rent cars are people who got in an accident right outside, you know, right around their home, and their cars in the shop, or people who want to rent a truck so they can move from one apartment to another. The, those are the people who get hit the burden when the rental car tax goes up, and that's oh. how a lot of these stadiums get funded. Uh, so there's, I and mean, there's other, you know, clever ways that people get around it and do it too. Um, none of these are uh, applicable to every stadium but these are some common practices. I'm curious if you guys have a, uh, I'm sure that you guys have done, done research and, and maybe have a position on this, but why aren't owners of teams like Dan Snyder or, or whoever, right? Why aren't they willing to just pay for the stadiums and, and buy these things themselves? And they want to get as much as they can for free. Uh, or as low, low cost as possible. And if they can convince a local government to give them money, they might as well. They, they are preying on home team pride, plain and simple. They prey on their fans because no, no elected official wants to be the official that let the team go, right? That's not a way to win an election. Uh, so they, they go and they try to get this money out of them and prey on that, that fear and how uh, sad the community might be if they lose their team. Have you guys looked at the Columbus crew activity that's been happening for like, I don't know, six months now? Uh, yeah, we, we spoke to save the crew uh, a couple weeks ago, actually uh, about some of the issues, you know, since it would be being our first foray in soccer, we're definitely looking at sticking around and we think save the crew is going to be a great one to add to it. Um, yeah, I believe like you know, Austin is courting them and, you know, they're one of the original MLS teams. And it's always sad when a community loses out on a chance to have a team just because they didn't want to pay taxes to keep them around. Uh, and that's a threat that team owners make all too often. They'll say, give me money or I'm leaving. Uh, and that should just not be not be the case. How often does that occur? Uh, well, we, we saw it with the Raiders. We saw it with the Chargers. We saw it with the Rams, all at the football. Um, Man, that was all in yeah. one year, too. Yeah. Yeah, you know, so I mean, it's it's happening more and more rapidly, uh, but still, I mean, very few people are just building and moving, building and moving. Uh, they're sticking around a little bit, but for the most part, it's about whenever the stadium needs a decent sized upgrade, is when the conversation happens again. So I'm I'm gonna try to steer this back to kind of soccer because that's obviously yes. what our what our audience is, and maybe maybe we can talk a little bit about like the Columbus Crew and some of this stuff that has seemed a little bit shady and I don't know how far into it you guys have, um, have gotten, but there, there's a couple different aspects of that, that the public was really kind of duped on. And one of those being there's an expansion committee that it kind of controls, um, where MLS is, is headed, kind of mm -hmm. steers the direction of the expansion. And I think if I'm not mistaken, one of the people on that committee is the owner of the Columbus crew. And so part of his like information that he's privy to is where the MLS wants to go next. And so he's kind of double dipping in a sense where he's owning this club in Colum or this team in Columbus 
and he's also looking at new places that MLS wants to be, is working with MLS to move the team, but little did the fans know that you know they were going to be losing their actual team in Columbus. So there's that aspect of it that I think would be interesting for you guys to kind of take head on. And I don't know if that's something that's been on uh, that's been put in front of you yet. Uh, that particular detail has not yet been put in front of us. But to be frank, I'm not surprised. The kinds of conflicts of interest that we've discovered in uh, U.S. soccer and MLS, especially with regard to MLS and Soccer United marketing. Uh, I'm not surprised that there's more of those out there like that, that we need to address. So I, you know, we appreciate you bringing that to the attention and forefront. Yeah. And so when it comes to conflict of interest and, and things like that, do you guys tend to get involved with those types of issues? Because if we want to talk about conflict of interest, I mean, U.S. soccer as a whole and, and every branch of it has, it, it, it seems like a disease of <laughs> conflict of interest. Oh, yes, we, we get involved with that. Uh, all the time, we try to call it out whenever we see it. And with with the U.S. soccer election, the biggest one I see is Kathy Carter and her relationship with MLS and Soccer United Marketing. That there is the tip of the iceberg for all that plagues U.S. soccer, all the way down to youth development and grassroots. What specifically about that relationship kind of raises red flags for you? It's anti-competitive, number one. Uh, Soccer United Marketing dictates the rights for MLS and then also dictates uh, by doing so is pushing out other leagues. So, for example, the NASL, which just lost sanctioning uh, because MLS has to compete with them in a lot of markets. And in a lot of cases, NASL teams actually would beat MLS teams in games. And that's not good for the MLS fandom, but it's good for the NASL, right? So what they do is they use the leverage afforded to them by Soccer United Marketing to push down these leagues that are uh, competing with them. Uh, what's more is the same people who own MLS teams, or are a part of the single entity, I should say, have the same shares in Soccer United Marketing. So these people are profiting off both arms of a nonprofit organization. Yeah. Soccer United Marketing is a for-profit corporation under the umbrella of U.S. soccer, but MLS is supposed to be nonprofit. Yeah, it's, you know, so it's go ahead. Oh, so, so that relationship right there just breeds conflict. When an MLS t- team owner risks losing money because of an NASL team in their market, they can use that leverage to push out the other teams. Now, one of the one of the things that that commonly gets brought up is that. There's a different definition that like the general public has for conflict of interest and what the court has for conflict of interest. So if 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 it's something like a fan that's looking at this and says, oh, my gosh, like Kathy Carter's the president of some and she's also running to be the president of U.S. soccer. Well, there's a clear conflict of interest there to the general fan. Right. Or to the, mm-hmm. to the everyday fan. But in a court's eyes, there's like these loopholes that kind of get. Uh, put in place where it makes it legal. So like the conflict of interest definition by a court allows it. Um, How do you guys kind of go back and forth between what you think might be, I guess, morally right versus legally right? So that's a great question. Uh, And to be honest, I believe the moral right is what most of our efforts are around because we're trying to convince the delegates to vote or to not vote for candidates that are a part of this problem, to vote for candidates that represent change, 
to try and facilitate the kinds of positive growth for U.S. soccer and not just growing the revenue and the, you know, the bank accounts of a few people. Uh, and the delegates, they don't have to worry about the court's this definition of conflicts of interest. They have to worry about what their personal definition of a conflict of interest is. Uh, and that's what we're hoping, you know, uh, triumphs at the end. You mentioned delegates, and I, when I was on the phone with Kristen the other day, she said that you guys have already done a fairly good job of reaching out and, and getting yourselves uh, in contact with, with the delegates. What's that process like for you guys? I'm curious how you guys actually go about starting a conversation with people that you want to inform or educate about these types of things. It started with you know contacting a few people that we already knew in the world. Uh, and having them make some introductions. But really our biggest effort was when we packed up and went up to Philadelphia for the U.S. Coaches Convention and sat in almost just about every candidate's uh, presentations and speeches, spoke to several of them one-on-one, -on -one, and actually asked them you know, where they stood with this kind of stuff. And then around the convention floor, finding other delegates, talking to the average U.S. soccer coach, uh, and really just kind of trying to bring the conversation forward. You know, so it's a lot of you know, just talking and listening to everyone and what they have to say about U.S. soccer. I have, I have two questions based off of what you just said right there, and I'll, mm -hmm. I'll start with this one. What was the most surprising to you when you were talking with candidates one-on-one? One-on-one? Uh, you know, I was very, very impressed with uh, several of the candidates, Hope Solo, Winalda, Winograd. They all came up with different ideas on how to address similar problems. And I think that, you know, a coalition of them working together for U.S. soccer could really be powerful. Uh, as for the most shocking thing I heard, period, was when Kathy Carter said that she was for whatever grew the revenue of U.S. soccer. Yeah, that was such bullshit, I remember, when she said that. <laughs> yeah, so that to me was just jarring uh, and way missed the point of what a U.S. soccer president is supposed to do. Uh, you're supposed to grow the game and according to their mission, be the preeminent, uh, make soccer the preeminent sport in America. Uh, you don't do that by growing revenue. You do that by developing players. Well, by all, by all accounts, it seems like our revenue generation has been pretty much fine. I mean, with the, with the surplus for a mm -hmm. non, it's that big for a nonprofit. It's like the revenue side seems to be fine so why would we want to double down on that if that has been affecting the you know the performance side uh negatively it's like that it makes no sense and it's so when she kind of gave that answer it or when she gave that answer it kind of showed how disconnected she really is from that grassroots the the high school the club even just like the game in general she's so exactly. in she's so engulfed in just the boardroom that she doesn't see anything else, apparently. Nope, that's that's completely true. Uh, and <laughs> Carlos Cordero is not much better. Uh, he's from Goldman Sachs. He was Chuck Blazer's money man. Comes in to see. He's even said on the campaign trail that he's not going to worry himself about the soccer side of U.S. soccer. He's going to find someone else to handle that. He's just going to focus on the money and the business. That really weirds me out when the when the people say that they're going to find other people to to do certain jobs. And I think I spoke mm -hmm. with the with um, Eric Winalda about this specifically. It's like if if that's your plan, then what you should be saying right now is who who those people are. Like if if your plan is to create like a a new position, like a tech, 
uh, sorry, technical director or uh, I don't know, you name it, but give us ideas of who you want to hire for those, those positions. Cause I feel like if you're voting for somebody, you should know exactly what they're all about. And if you're going to get, get, you know, hire another Dan Flynn or, you know, somebody like a Kathy Carter or a Carlos and put those people in those positions, I don't want that either. So. I a hundred percent agree. Uh, I mean, I, I admit that not every candidate can, uh, have all of the skills necessary. Uh, you know, you do need to have a good team of people around you to help with various parts that you may not be an expert at, but I can't right now trust that people like Carter or Cordero will find those right people who aren't just, you know, sycophants or holdovers from Gulati. You know, they are not, they have done nothing to convince me that they are the candidate for change. They have done nothing to convince them that they know what the future of U.S. soccer should be. All they care about is making their their wallets get fatter and the bank accounts of their investors get bigger. Yeah. Um, I want I want to go back to the second question that kind of popped into my head when you were talking about your time at the convention. And that question was, what was what was your feeling from your conversations with kind of like the average coach or the average fan that was walking around the convention? And maybe how did those conversations differ than what types of conversations you were having with the candidates themselves? Uh Actually, a lot of the candidates that we spoke to and a lot of the coaches and also I spoke with some players at um, NPSL and some lower division soccer players, they align a lot with some of the change candidates. Uh, they all mostly agree that Kathy Carter's not going to help them. You know, the biggest topic on coaches' mind, obviously, is how expensive it is to get licensed as a coach. Yep. And how much money that costs and how much sacrifice and time it requires for a coach to get the right license just so they can go out on the field with the players and develop yeah. these this talent. Uh, and that was an issue that, you know, a lot of candidates didn't address it. Carter and Cordero didn't address it, but ones like Solo and Winaldo and Winograd did. Uh, and they have ideas that will help uh, make it a little uh, less expensive. How, uh, how often did promotion and relegation come up when you were, when you were in Pennsylvania? <laughs> you know, for as uh, fierce as the fandom puts ProVal out there. Uh, I actually didn't hear very talk about very much when it came out of the coaches. I think they were more concerned about their licensing and their, and the grassroots soccer and developing their players. Uh, but I do know it's a, it's a huge issue and I think it could be really exciting for the game. Do you, have you guys started to explore ways that you can get involved in on that front? Uh, yeah, we are, we are right now looking at several different ways to stay in, stay involved with the soccer and, uh, keep advocating for soccer fans. Uh, and promotion relegation is one of those options. Yeah. It seems like with the, the, there's a big, there's been a big, big boom of amateur soccer. Like I I (laughs) guess it's, uh, it typically falls into like the fourth division in the American, um, I, I hesitate to say the word pyramid, but, um, yeah, so like uh, uh, the fourth division amateur soccer in this country has gone crazy with things like the UPSL and the NPSL and some other like local leagues starting up. And and to me, that is an indication of what potentially could be teams fighting for the top spot in, you know, be it a major league soccer or whatever division one team or league uh, pops up in the future. But they're so ignored. I, I don't get it. Uh-huh. It's just like they're, they're ignored from the entire conversation. And it, it, 
it's hard for me to even talk about it sometimes because I get so fired up and that's why I hate going on Twitter sometimes because you can just get lost in the sea of just negative comments and responses and people kind of jumping around from topic to topic. So to have somebody like your organization or to have something like your organization kind of, you know, tackling the topic in a, in a professional way and in different forums and something like that, I think would be very, very helpful. And it was kind of, honestly, I was a little bit bummed to hear you say that it wasn't more of a, of a topic that got talked about at the convention, but again, I'm also not surprised. So. Yeah. I mean, these were coaches, but and uh, promotion relegation is definitely something that you know the players care about. I spoke to a few players of the Kingston stockade. Oh, of course. Uh, while, I was, while I was at the convention and, they were telling me their story about how they created soccer fans in that community. And they really brought it up from a grassroots level there. And uh, it was an, it's an incredible story. And I recommend, you know, any of your listeners to check it out, but you know, they did talk about how promotion relegation can give them the incentive to keep, you know, pushing themselves, go harder and grow and evolve in U S soccer. So I definitely think it's uh, something that fans are passionate about and it should be something that uh, gets thoughtful consideration uh as we move forward yeah Den- dennis has a very interesting project up there he's the owner of stockade hopefully yeah, you guys I, hope- I spoke to him as well yeah he's a rad guy and yeah. dennis dennis kind of flipped his position in maybe last year or year before i can't really remember exactly when it was and he'd always been kind of not always but he he's kind of new to the soccer world as well so just like three years four years something like that and he started out saying that he wanted to change soccer from, from the ground up. So grassroots up. And that's why he wanted to start stockade. But I think he quickly realized that that glass ceiling prevented his, his growth. Like there's no possible way to grow to what you want to be in the Hudson Valley without that, you know, opportunity of, of moving up the ranks. And he totally flipped his script. And now with the, with the cast filing kind of looming and, and some other stuff. I'm, I am a big, big backer of, of Dennis and all of his work now. It's, it's amazing. So are you guys, are, are you, are you familiar or tuned in with his, with his cast filing with the, with the paperwork that him and the Miami FC owner put together? Uh, no, I'm not. Yeah. So they, uh, they went ahead and put in some paperwork. Oh man. I always mess this up. CAS. So court, court of arbitration for sport i think that's in switzerland mm-hmm. so they basically are are saying yeah the the setup in in the united states is anti-competitive and they want cast to kind of enforce fifa's rule that you know promotion relegation is part of you know fifa's bylaws and the united states yeah. is is not um com- in compliance right now and that's something that eric winalda has kind of hinted at is is a big big deal and and something that he's made part of his platform is that yeah. um, well, he, he wants on, to be compliant. Yeah, on a similar note, I mean, Hope Solo just the other day um, re- sent a filing to the U.S. Olympic Committee filing a grievance against U.S. soccer and how they failed the game and failed their charter as a, a governing body. Uh, and it's a scathing read. It is brutal uh, against U.S. soccer and everything that happened to, you know, if you're familiar with uh, Hope's story about you know, after, you know, she, the Swedes, I think it was Sweden, uh, and everything that happened there with Gulati and how she basically got blacklisted yep. uh, from U.S. soccer. I mean, it's it's brutal. I recommend you guys check that one out, too. 
Uh, yeah. It goes into a lot of the anti-competitive behaviors that the uh, Soccer United Marketing MLS relationship really does hurt women too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, Soccer United Marketing is profiting off of the women's team's likeness, but they're not getting near as much as the men's. Yep. And what's even worse is in this upcoming presidential election, their vote within the pro, uh, pro council is one third that of the men's. Yep. So they that, don't even have an equal say. That's a really good. That's a really good point that you just brought up because from the way that like the the bylaws read, it, it should be like okay, Division One leagues, which would be NWSL and MLS. You know, mm-hmm. they they should be allocated the same number or the same percentage of the vote by the way the the bylaw reads but somehow MLS ends up with like 14% of the overall vote and and NWSL is like minuscule compared to that and is that it, makes as, it makes no sense yeah as i understand it, it's based off of attendance and like some weird other equations yeah uh, and that's and that's a little bit of bullshit too because i don't yep. i don't understand that uh, when it well, comes to <laughs> USL games and NESL so. Well, you know the people of MLS wrote those bylaws. Of course, of course. <laughs> you yeah. know, so of, of course, course they're going to keep their power. Of course. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's it's a shame that in 2018, we still have to have this conversation. It seems, I, I've, I've talked about this, I don't know if I've ever talked about it on the podcast, but I've always wondered if some people got involved with soccer because they wanted to be like in politics or, you know, in the limelight, but you know, the other spaces were too crowded or they couldn't get in like with NFL or something like that. So all these guys kind of like hid in soccer and soccer government and you know, whatever. And then all of a sudden now there's this big spotlight and all the shit that, that they've been, you know, caught up in for years and years and years that nobody really cared to look at before. But now it's like you're, I mean, you're uncovering so much stuff every single week, it seems like, in, in American soccer. And these guys are all getting exposed. I don't know how much longer these guys can actually withstand all this. But, uh, but yeah, so I, I felt for a long time that some people got involved in soccer because they wanted to be like a team owner or something like that, but couldn't quite make it an NBA or NFL. So they, they kind of chose to be involved in this space instead. Well, there's a lot of that, but I can also tell you that you know Bob Kraft, who owned the Patriots. Yeah. Is also part of revolution. Yep, yep, yep. You know, so there's actually a lot of crossover between the big four sports owners uh, and MLS. Uh, it's what we've been kind of around the office calling the NFLization of U.S. soccer. Of course. You know, they're trying to mimic that business model because it gives them the most profit. Yep. Yep. And an- another thought that I've that I've had too, and I don't know if I've talked about that before or about this before, is kind of like these these NFL guys that got started in in mls maybe like one of their goals was to get started and then sell the team and sell Mm -hmm. and sell all their shares and get out of that i don't know if that was one of their initial goals but or i I don't i don't even know if that has already happened it might have already happened um but that that was just something that i i kind of always i always thought of um Mm -hmm. in a a few years let's see i guess it would have been 2011 I think is when Sunil Galati or 2013 is either 2011 or 2013 is when Sunil Galati actually finally officially stopped working for New England Revolution. So that's uh, a solid either five or seven years after he was elected U.S. soccer president. That that to me is like mind mind blowing. And then he served a term or two terms 
as U.S. Auger vice president before that. So it's like he was either vice president or president and still working for and being paid for or paid by a major league soccer team. That, that is yep. m- absolutely mind blowing to me. Yeah. So shall we rewind to all the conflicts of interest we've been uncovering? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. What's, what's kind of sickening about that though, is that it's been known like that, that was absolutely known and none, none of like American soccer media or media in general decided to go after that topic. Like it should have been. Yeah. And well, if somebody, what's, what's if your... go ahead, Sorry, I'm saying what's a real shame about that is we've been speaking to a lot of uh, soccer reporters, uh, bloggers, but also ones from bigger publications. And when we tell them about the story, when we tell them what we're uncovering, we get to this point where everyone's like, this is great, but I need my credentials. Yep. (laughs) And there's a fear of retribution, uh, which, again, anti-competitive behavior. They are afraid of voices going against them. You know, yep. so how, how can we have the honest conversations that we need to have about U.S. soccer? How can the delegates who are, you know, coaches or uh, run, you know, small youth organizations in North Dakota, let's say, actually understand the implications of their vote when we can't even have an honest and open conversation about the future of soccer? When MLS is actively suppressing the, uh, the press. Are you are you familiar with the? Oh man, I'm gonna I'm gonna butcher this one too. It was either Real Salt Lake or Colorado Rapids. One of their kind of like beat reporters uh, got his credentials slip or uh, stripped because he he was vocal about some of the decisions that the front office was making about the team. And I, if I'm not mistaken, that reporter ended up releasing emails from him and the general manager of the team or the owner of the team. I can't remember which one. But it, yeah, the the ultimate result was that he was yanked, and he's no longer been able to get back in. And that's a that's a shame. A, yeah, it's a, it's a big bummer. But they set the example that if you do that, that's going to happen to you too. And so all these guys kind of just sit like, just you know, legs crossed, arms folded, super polite, and they just do their do their little reporting. It's very little journalism, in my opinion. It's it's very little. In like investigative journalism or storytelling, it's it's a lot of score reporting, transfer news, um, you know, jersey reveals and stuff like that. Like that's the type of of work that these guys are getting. But I understand, you know, it puts food on their table and, and they need it. That's their livelihood. So you you can't go against uh, you know the hand that's feeding you. I I, I get it, but it's it, they just need they they need to. I don't know the best way to say it. Stop protecting them when other people decide to try to call them out. Um, I think that's a big one. I think there's a big ring of uh, of protection that that happens when somebody like me, for instance, uh, will put out this podcast where there's going to be a lot of points brought up that those guys that could hurt those guys potentially, and and they go into like defensive mode. So I yeah. I think there's a lot of that and. Yeah, I guess I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, no, you're, you hit it right on the head. Yeah. Um, all right, well, I, I don't want to keep you all day, but I, I do have a, a couple more questions that I wanted to uh, to get your opinion on. And, and I guess the, the, biggest, the biggest one right now is what do you think U.S. soccer fans or American soccer fans absolutely need to know or what should they absolutely be watching for? I know that's kind of a general question, but yeah, that, that encompasses a lot. But 
uh, when it comes to this presidential election, this is what shapes U.S. soccer for the next few years. Uh, this is what will determine how expensive it's going to cost for your kid to play soccer at the club level. You know, is it going to cost still you know, multiple thousands of dollars or is it going to start becoming more affordable and more accessible to people of, of all communities and all socioeconomic backgrounds? Uh, you know, we're talking about the hundred, I think it's like a more than a hundred million dollar surplus that U.S. soccer has that could go to programs like that. Uh, you need to be aware that you know, U.S. soccer and still in 2018 does not treat women fairly. Uh, they are not given the same pay. They are not given the same treatment. Uh, they were forced for a long time to play on turf. Uh, they need to be aware that the kinds of conflicts of interest, especially with MLS and Soccer United Marketing, are the core of this. And that by electing, by having the delegates elect Kathy Carter or Carlos Cordero, they are voting for more of the same, which is growth in boardrooms, growth in the wallet, but not on the fields. And, you know, when Dempsey uh, missed the goal and we didn't qualify for the World Cup, that was what I'm really happy to see is the flashpoint that really opened everyone's eyes to the problems of uh, U.S. soccer. You know, we need to start addressing these issues head on uh, with candidates that really do believe in developing players so that we can finally compete on the national stage again. Yeah, we we recorded a podcast that night that that happened and. We've been vocal for for years. Um, the owner, the owner of this company specifically, um, and and me with this podcast for the last three years. But what that that game in October when we when we missed the World Cup or when we got bounced from the World Cup, what that did is it, it kind of gave certain people, like certain reporters or media or journalists, it, it kind of gave them permission to open those cans of worms that maybe they, they haven't been able to in the past. So it's been good. There's been a lot of good stuff that's that's come out, but I just, it, it can't stop. And, and that's what I'm most afraid of is that if the wrong candidate gets elected, that it just goes back to businesses as, as usual. That's what I'm absolutely most afraid of. Well, that's why we're sticking around. That's good. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna stay vocal. We're gonna stay loud, and we're gonna try to make sure that the can whoever the candidate is, even if it is one of the change candidates, the one you know, Winalda, Sola, Winograd, or any of the others, that they know that we are still watching. That's that good. We do still care. Uh, so you, <laughs> this won't be the last time you hear about sports coalition. <laughs> and when when I talked to Kristen the other day, I I talked to her about bringing you on and kind of having like a big general conversation like we just had. Um, mm -hmm. and then, and then having you guys back on to kind of tackle specific issues or specific topics. Love um, that. and so if we can, if we can get you guys back on here, um, to talk about, you know, just a, an episode about promotion relegation and an episode about, uh, stadium financing, an episode about, um, transparency and things like that, conflict of interest, that would, that would be amazing to me. Um, so I, I love that. I, I hope you guys are down. <laughs> yeah. Any, anytime you need a song, we'll, we'll be there. Cool. Um, one one uh, kind of last thing. Where can people find out more about you, about what you guys are doing, and how can they get in contact with you guys? Yeah, uh, they can go to sportsfans.org, uh, and you can see all of our some of our issues that we have. But our blog has a lot of the most recent updates about what we are doing in, uh, with our campaign at the presidential election. Okay. Uh, so definitely take people to sportsfans.org and the blog. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at sportsfan.org. Um, 
and on Facebook as well. Um, we're on all, and we're just actually launched a YouTube channel. So we're going to be starting to send out some more videos and stuff. That's uh, awesome. So that's the best way to contact us. And, you know, we, we love hearing from the fans. If there is a fan that's having an issue or believes that there's a problem with their team, come to us uh, and we might be able to help. That's awesome. That's an awesome resource that hasn't been available to the soccer community at any point in, in, in my opinion. So that's it's an amazing resource and I'm super happy to have you guys involved in the conversation now and involved in the fight. So welcome. Absolutely. Well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> cool, man. Uh, any, any last, uh, messages or words for people that are listening? Yeah. I just want to, you know, reemphasize the importance of change with us soccer right now. This, this election has a lot of consequence uh, for what's going to happen in the future. You know, it, it, when we start bringing our players up and we start training them on ways that are actually comp- uh, people, they're competitive on the na- international stage, uh, when we start addressing some of the issues that are core at U.S. soccer and stop hiding, stop shunning journalists out uh, who want to cover these topics, when we start actually doing that, and it has to come from the fans first, and then the players and the coaches and all the way up the, uh, the pyramid. We have, to for, we have to make sure that our voices are heard. Uh, and that's why we're, we're here doing this now. So we want to make sure that the fans are heard. Uh, so, you know, write, you know, write to your associations if you're a parent with a, a child, uh, kid soccer player. Or write to, if you know one of your delegates, write to them. Let them know that you want a candidate for change and that you don't want the status quo. I love I love when people actually use that and mean it, so that's yes. good. <laughs> For being new into this in, into this realm, dude, you're you're nailing a lot of the stuff that that we're passionate about. So it's no, it's good you. to add your voice to the conversation. I uh, I appreciate you giving me giving me some of your time, and I know the fans are are, are going to like you guys as well. So can't wait to oh, have you guys back on. Thank you very much. Right. Thank you for listening to another episode of the 343 podcast. Thank you to Brian Hess for coming on the show. And if you guys want to find out more about Sports Fans Coalition, you can find out more in the write-up that is available on 343coaching.com. I have links to all of Brian's work and all of the work that they do at Sports Fans Coalition. And while you're there, you should also check out and learn more about the 343 Coaching Education Program because that is what powers this podcast. So check out 343coaching.com. That's the numbers 3, 4, and 3, coaching, all spelled out, dot com. All right. As always, thank you so much for listening. I really, really, really appreciate you guys, and we will catch you here next time on the 343 Podcast.